says, Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And Father, we just humbly ask as we continue now in worship, as we've sang and prayed and fellowshiped and done other things in worship, help us now to continue in a heart of worship by just wanting to genuinely hear what you as the living God would say to us personally through this portion of the word of God that you've inspired by your spirit and given to us. Lord, you know what it means for each one of us this morning. We ask, please prepare us. Let us be good and fertile soil for the seed of your word. And we pray, please speak by your spirit to each and every one of us. Bless your word and minister now by your spirit's ministry. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Now, it's often well been said that it is important to give credit where credit is due. It's important to give credit where credit is due. And I think that is probably twice as important, maybe 10 times as important when it comes to giving credit to the Lord for the things that the Lord has done. And that's really what we see Peter in this next section of Acts chapter 3 doing. Jesus has just performed an incredible work of God, a healing of a man, and Peter wants to make sure that proper credit is being given to Jesus and not to him or anyone else. If you were with us last time, or if you weren't, by way of refresher, Acts chapter 3 verse 1 to 10 records for us, it says, a time when Peter and John were heading up to the temple at the hour of prayer, and as they were on their way to the temple, it says, there was a certain man lame from his mother's womb who they carried and they laid there by the temple every day he would ask for alms as people were entering into the temple and seeing Peter and John he asked for alms for a donation as he often did of others and that day Jesus wanted to work in this man's life it was the appointed hour it was the day on God's calendar where God had a life-changing transforming experience planned for this man who had been in that condition we know for upwards to 40 years and it says, because of that, no doubt, the Spirit of God stirred Peter's heart. And Peter, hearing this request, turned to this man, fixed his eyes upon him, and he said, look at us. And the man gave his attention, expecting to receive something. It's at that point, remember, Peter then said to him, silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And Peter didn't just say that. He then, it says, reached down, grabbed this man and lifted up this paralyzed man. And in the moment that he lifted this man up after having said those things, 
the miraculous power of the Lord just infused this man's life. Dr. Luke, who certainly would be impressed from a medical perspective, said immediately his feet, his ankle bones began to receive strength. So all of a sudden, you know, ligaments and tissue and muscle just springing alive after it was in this dead and paralyzed condition. And a powerful miracle of God takes place as Jesus works this healing miracle through the life of his servants. And this man's life is changed and transformed. It says he walked up leaping and praising God entering into the temple and all the people who knew he'd been in that condition were shocked they were genuinely amazed they knew this man and the condition he had been in for years and they could tell he was radically different something had happened in his life that was profound was miraculous and life-changing and all of the people were wondering and amazed what happened to him and it's at that point we pick up in verse 11 it tells us that as the lame man who was healed verse 11 it says he held on to peter and john all the people ran together to them in the porch which is called solomon's a description of a location in the temple and they were greatly amazed. Now, verse 11 here really is what we have is basically God setting the stage. God is now setting the stage to speak vital spiritual truths into the ears, into the hearts, more than that, of those who just observed this miracle of seeing this man's life be changed. And in the same way that Jesus powerfully worked to heal a man, to change and transform someone's life... In the same way, Jesus now also wants to speak into the lives of all the people who are there as an opportunity for them to hear about the life-changing power of God available to them. And what we find here in verse 11 is God kind of setting the stage for this, as we said last time, getting the greatest mileage possible out of doing what he's just done in this man's life. As I said last time, it is possible that Jesus, during his public ministry, walked by this same paralyzed man numerous times during his lifespan, not healing him, not healing him. And the reason is God had a set day and a set hour where he would not only change this man's life, but now we're going to see the truth of the gospel and the truth about Jesus Christ is preached to multitudes of people who have a chance to hear eternal and spiritual truths because God always works in a way and at the time where he's going to get the greatest mileage out of what he does. So God waits for this day when it's the perfect occasion. There's crowds around. And the first thing you see in verse 11 there is this overwhelming gratitude of this man who's experienced a powerful life change. It says there in verse 11, the lame man who was healed, it says he held on to, the language indicates he was clinging to Peter and John. Now, that makes sense. He recognized the power of the Lord had just flowed through these men's lives to help him. And so he wanted to stay with them. You might say he wanted to stay connected to them. And the reason is because he sensed their connection to God. So he wants to stay connected to them because he realizes these men are certainly connected to God because they were just used to bring this powerful miracle into my life. Now, his gratitude is understandable. Unfortunately, him clinging to Peter and John was causing everyone to put the focus in the wrong place. Their attention and their focus was now riveted upon Peter and John on these two men who were only just the servants 
and the vessels, the instrument that the Lord had used. But the attention is now on Peter and John. You can tell the curiosity of the people regarding this miracle. It says the people all ran together in this area because they knew this man's life had changed and they ran together greatly amazed and they see now Peter and John being clung to as the one this man is expressing his gratitude and obviously what's happening here is the people are wondering and many were connecting the miraculous power to Peter and John predominantly and, and Peter doesn't want this to happen. That's why we read in verse 12, when Peter saw what was happening, he perceived it. He responded to the people saying, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, that this miracle just happened? Or why do you look so intently at us as though he says by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk. So Peter seeks to answer the people's questions and notice he wants to wrongly correct some of the improper thinking. He says, first of all, men of Israel, the first thing he says is, why are you marveling at this? You can almost sense that Peter, being a good Jewish man, says, have you forgotten that the God of Israel, Yahweh God, our God, have you forgotten the miracle working power of the God of Israel? He's saying in Moses' day, in, in you know, Joshua's day, in the days of Elijah and Elisha, God has always been a miracle-working God. Why are you marveling that a powerful work of God just happened in someone's life? Why should this astonish you? The idea is they should not be totally surprised that God could and would display such power. He was a miracle-working God. Jeremiah said in his day, Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God... Behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. And that's the idea why Peter's saying, why are you marveling at this? You know, it is quite honestly somewhat interesting how sometimes we'll pray for something, you know, even ourselves and a prayer will come to pass. And it's like, we're, wow, we're shocked. And, and, and in some ways, it's almost somewhat humorous. You know, and when we get to Acts chapter 12, they're praying, remember there, uh, where, that Peter would be released from prison. And then Peter gets released from prison. He goes to the prayer meeting where the church is praying for him to be released from prison. He knocks on the door. A gal answers. He says, hey, it's Peter. Let me in. She's shocked. She runs. She tells everybody praying for Peter to get released from prison. Hey, Peter's at the door. They said, come on. We're praying for Peter. Don't be funny. What are you trying to play? A joke on us here? And, and again, it's almost, they're, they're shocked that what they prayed for actually come to pass. And in some ways, it is quite interesting. We do marvel sometimes when God works in a mighty way. We really shouldn't. He's God. We should expect God to work in a mighty way. If God created the heavens and the earth, we should realize there is nothing too hard for the Lord. It may seem too hard for us. It may seem impossible because of the way circumstances look to us right now. But if it be the will of the Lord, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. Nothing that we should even really marvel at that God would do. We should recognize he has the power to. And Peter also, notice, wants to make sure they're not wrongly giving credit where credit was not due. That's why he says the end of verse 12, also, why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, 
we made this man walk. So the miracle coming to pass to help this man and the Lord's supernatural power flowing in this situation was not due to something superior about Peter or John. It wasn't because there was something special about them as servants of the Lord. They didn't possess some special power like a Christian superhero that other Christians didn't possess. It wasn't that they were just so much more godly or holy or spiritual. And as a result of because of how they were so godly, that was why then the power of God came to pass. Peter says, why are you looking intently at us as if this happened because of our godliness or because there's some power that we possess somehow? Look, whenever we look at some person as if because they're so godly, or they're so much more godly than others are, or they're perhaps just someone so in touch with God that that's why God is working through their life. I hate to say it, but we're idolizing someone. We're putting someone, in a sense, on a pedestal and in a perspective that really usurps the place that Jesus deserves. And we're beginning to wrongly deduce in our mind that something special or superior exists about that person. The last I checked, the Bible says there's no difference. Everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God. So we're all at the same standard. Failure. That's the standard for every one of us. God doesn't work you know, because of us. God works in spite of us. It's a, it's a work of the grace of God that he could use any one of us. So Peter here quickly refutes all such error elevation, he says, look, don't think that we're so godly that that's why God did this. Don't think that there's something about us that we possess power that other servants of God don't. He says, it's not because we were so godly that, that, that the Lord looked and said, wow, they are so godly, I can just... He says, no, 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 that's not the case at all. And what you find Peter doing here, and it's very important, is Peter is trying to deflect all credit from being given to him. He's trying to deflect any glory or, or exaltation being given to him for what God has just done in his ministry or through the work of the power of God happening in his life. Peter would not only seek credit and not only not seek glory, he wouldn't let someone else try and give him glory. He refuted it. You know, tragically, sometimes, and it's probably the grossest prostitution of the work of God or the work of ministry, people actually seek credit or glory for what the Lord does through their life. And they enjoy it. And they like kind of being the, you know, the, the face that's known, the image of a ministry. Or, I mean, they, they actually seek after it. And they actually kind of enjoy the whole kind of, you know, superstar, you know, type. Th look, that's horrible. That, that's, that's, the Bible says that God shares his glory with no one. That's, that's prostituting the glory of God and the power and the work of God's ministry. But Peter here, he wouldn't even allow people to give him glory. When people were accidentally trying to do it, Peter was refuting it, saying, look, be careful. Please don't, don't think this is just because I'm so godly. Peter's saying, this is nothing other than the grace of God here that just happened. This is just God's grace. That's the only reason something wonderful happened. And really, I think this is an important lesson because we have to be careful of letting wrong perceptions sometimes as human beings develop when we see the power of the Lord at work through people's lives. Whether it's the Lord working through our own life, we never ever want to wrongly think that if the Lord uses us in some way or the Lord is using us in some way, 
that somehow it's because of our own godliness. Well, it's just because we're reading our Bible so much or we're praying so much or we're walking in the Spirit so much that, that because we've kind of just become so godly that now God's just working through us in a special way because of our own godliness. That's not healthy. And when we see the Lord work through someone else's life, look, nothing wrong with an encouragement or praying for someone, but we never want to wrongly elevate or idolize someone and give credit or glory to a vessel or an instrument when it's truly the grace of God, when it's the power of the Lord that's just using someone's life and simply that's what it is. And Peter here takes a strong stance. Well, after having taken the attention and the focus off of himself, Peter now goes on to wisely put the focus where it should be, which is on Jesus. He says, look, it's not us, verse 13, but the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified, he said, his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses, Peter says, and his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you now see and know. Yes, he says, the faith which comes through him, through Jesus, has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So Peter uses this opportunity to put people's attention and to address their spiritual curiosity in the right place to point the crowd of people to the Lord Jesus. He says there clearly in verse 13, look, what this was, was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was an opportunity for the God of our fathers, he says, to glorify his servant, Jesus. That's what this was, Peter says. This was just a God-ordained opportunity. God wanted to work in this man's life and it was Jesus, he says as well there in verse 16, who gave this paralyzed man the restoration and the miracle working power in his body to give him a soundness in his life once again. Now, in verses 13 to 16 here, where Peter's referring to the Lord Jesus, he basically does two things there in those verses as he talks about Jesus. The first thing he does is, as I said, he, he gives a, a revelation of the reality that it was the authority and the power of the Lord that brought about the change in this man's life. Peter, denying the miracle or power came from him, now declares the truth of what God was doing. He says, our God was glorifying, verse 13, he says, his servant, Jesus. Now, to me, I find that beautiful. He's saying God was trying to draw attention to Jesus. And I love how Peter refers to Jesus there. He refers to him as his servant the servant of God. Now, keep in mind, Jesus being the son of God, being equal in deity and all the attributes of divinity with God the Father, also humbly came to this earth to function in his first coming as a humble servant among humanity. That's what Jesus was marked as. Jesus wanted to be known as the son of man being the servant of all. And it's interesting that Jesus is perceived in the Bible and seen and identified as the ultimate servant of God. That is, Jesus came in a body of flesh to serve the purposes of God to the greatest degree. And to me, I find it wonderful. The only servant that God will glorify and God wants to glorify is Jesus. 
That's the only servant God wants to glorify. God doesn't want to glorify me. He doesn't want to glorify you. The only servant on earth God does want to glorify is Jesus, the greatest servant, the one who served the purposes of God to the greatest degree and still does to save and help and heal and transform people. And referring to Jesus being the true servant that brought healing to this man, Peter says in verse 16, he says, it was his name through faith in his name that made this man strong. Notice the continual references to his name. Again, the name of a person always infers their identity, who they are. The name of a person speaks of, uh, of everything that person represents, all they possess and they're able to do. And Peter says, look, the authority and the power that healed this man the power that changed this man, that transformed this man and brought about a new condition in his life, he says it was all because of the power of Jesus. It came in Jesus' name, by the authority of his throne. He's the one that brought it to pass. In fact, Peter says it's because we had faith in him. That's why this happened. It wasn't who we are. It was because we had faith in him. And then Peter goes on to say, verse 16, he says, even the faith and confidence that we possessed in him and his power, he says, even the faith came through him. In other words, Peter says, we can't even take credit for believing. <laughs> he says, he, not only did he supply the power, he gave us the faith to believe in his power, to understand who he is, that he is a ruler and the Lord over all. The bottom line that Peter's trying to convey again is all the credit and all the glory needs to go where the credit is due. And he says, it's to Jesus. It's not to any person. And I'll tell you, whenever we see the power of God at work to change lives, we need to realize what the heart of God in the midst of that is, is to make sure that people see Jesus more. God wants to reveal to people when he works in some way powerfully, whether God does a miracle in this present age or a healing or God works in some way to change somebody's life. What God wants in that opportunity is a stage and a platform to reveal to people who are watching that they should turn their heart to Jesus, that they should see who Jesus is for themselves and want to follow Jesus for themselves. Secondly, Peter here also identifies, as you can tell in his strong language, he identifies how these people made a continuous mistake of rejecting and refusing the Lord and instead always seeming to look to other people. He says there, verse 13, the God of our fathers sent and glorified Jesus as Messiah. But then look what he says about Jesus. He said he sent and glorified Jesus whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you, again, verse 14, denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed, he said, verse 15, the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. So Peter reminds them of their past error and sin in continually refusing Jesus, not only not glorifying Jesus, but constantly rejecting Jesus. And this had just happened. Again, Peter speaks quite boldly and directly there of the reality of their sinful actions. And when we read the accounts in the Gospels, it describes how the Jews genuinely did that very thing as a people that they had turned their very Messiah 
over to Pilate, as Peter's referring to here. And again, Peter being a fellow Jew, he's taking responsibility, saying, look, this is what we did. The very God of Israel sent us, his son, the Messiah, to us. And we turned him over to Pilate and said he was guilty of blasphemy and claiming to be a king. And he says, continuously, we've shown that we've rejected him. Now, when you read the gospel accounts, it tells us there how when Pilate had Jesus brought to him, he examined Jesus and he said, I find no fault in this man. But he said, it is your custom that at the feast day, I would release a prisoner to you. So who would you want me to release to you? And he gave an opportunity for Jesus to be released. It says, Mark 15, that he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels and had committed murder in the rebellion. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he always had done. But Pilate said, do you want me to release the king of the Jews to you? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd that they should rather release Barabbas. And Pilate answered and said, what then do you want me to do with him who is called king of the Jews? So they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas and delivered Jesus and scourged him then to be crucified. So this is what Peter's inferring in these verses as he says, you repeatedly denied the Holy One and the Just One. He says, continuously, you condemned an innocent man. And he says, you chose a murderer. And instead, you then murdered the prince of life. He's saying, you killed the author of life. Now, Peter, that's pretty strong there. That's, I mean, that's, that's pretty direct language. You want to talk about confronting somebody about their guilt and their sin. But listen, they were indeed guilty of quite a bit of sin. They had done some pretty wrong things. And Peter here, his direct speech is not to be condemning, but he wants them to see and to face and to embrace that they were sinful and they were guilty before their God and that they needed to bear responsibility for that. And we learn from Peter's spirit-led communication here, look, that people need to be told the reality about their sin, about guilt. You know, we, we have this concept in our modern culture that somehow for people to face responsibility is going to harm them. And so everybody, you can act however you want. There's no responsibility for your actions. There's no consequences for your decisions. And we're constantly lying, trying to tone down anybody ever being confronted with facing the consequence and the reality of their own decisions. And the Word of God makes it very clear that people, specifically in the area of spiritual life, it is truly important need to know that they have sinned. They need to feel guilt they need to actually sense that they have done wrong things in thought and word and deed. And that's necessary to pointing people to salvation in Christ. You know, we talk about Jesus as a savior. If people don't sense they're sinful and they don't feel guilty, what do they want to be saved from? Look, the reason that I turned my life over to Jesus Christ is because I sensed that I was very guilty and I was terrified that I was going to hell. 
And so that was what prompted me to say, I need to be saved. I need somebody to forgive me, to save me. I don't want to go to hell. But it was the guilt and the sense of sin and conviction first that caused me then to want to be saved, to realize I needed to be saved. And so Peter here speaks very boldly, very directly, but he's not trying to be condemning. He's trying to allow the Spirit of God to bring conviction for the sin in their lives. And we need to be willing to share the same and let people experience the same. Look what Peter says, verse 17. He says, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance as did your rulers. So Peter, again, remember, understanding what it was like to deny Jesus because he had done it himself. Peter here is the perfect vessel to convey this. He doesn't remove the reality of their guilt, but he graciously wants to help them see their situation is not hopeless. Peter has the heart of the Lord. Remember when Jesus was dying on the cross, one of the things he said is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And this is the same idea here with Peter. Yes, their sin made them guilty. However, their sin was done in foolish error. Peter says, I know that you did it in ignorance. In other words, Peter's saying, look, you made a series of selfish and wrong choices due to your human ignorance and that you were blind to the reality that you were doing something that was indeed wrong. But Peter says, but yet that doesn't cause you to escape responsibility for it. Peter here is conveying two important things. Though we may do things wrong out of ignorance and blindness at some point in our life, that does not mean we're excused for the responsibility. That doesn't mean that if I do something wrong prior to really realizing it's wrong, that, oh, because I didn't know it was wrong, I'm therefore no longer accountable for it. God would say, yes, you are. It may have been done in ignorance, maybe for a series of decisions, you were making some poor choices, but you still bear the guilt for it. You still are responsible for the consequences of those wrong actions. The good news is, is that thankfully God wants to pardon the sin. God wants to forgive the sin. God wants to release us. And the way he's provided for that is by letting Christ be punished rather than us bearing our punishment. That's why Peter goes on, verse 18, saying, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of his prophets that the Christ, notice, would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So Peter says, yes, you are greatly guilty of sin. But he says, the good news is God has made a way for your sin to be pardoned. And God has made a way for you to experience forgiveness. God, knowing mankind would sin, lovingly planned and provided a path so that we could all be pardoned for the sinful things that we've done in life. God made a way that we could be forgiven. How did God do it? Well, Peter says, verse 18, God predicted that he would send a savior who would die in the place of the people. That is, as a substitute, the prophets predicted God was going to send a Messiah or a Christ to deliver us. But in order for that to happen, he says, as the prophets foretold, the Christ would have to suffer. The idea is substitutionally that the Savior, the Christ, would have to, in a substitutional way, suffer in the place of guilty sinners. See, all sin must be punished. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. Sin has to be punished. God can't just wink at sin and ignore it. That would not make him a just judge. God is righteous. He is just. Sin has to be punished. The good news is 
God punished Jesus. God justly allowed someone else in a substitutionary way to be punished for everything wrong that I've done. For everything wrong that you have done. God in his love let someone else take the punishment and bear the wrath. And the prophets foretold that the Christ would come and suffer in this way. Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus came, it said this regarding Jesus. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Now listen to the language, please. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see how the Bible is speaking substitutionary payment was made for the punishment we deserve for sin. That it's critical that we understand we all have gone astray. We all have sinned. We are all guilty before a holy God and God has to punish sin. But God chose to allay the affliction, the punishment, the wounds, the suffering to pour out the wrath of the righteousness of God against sin. But he poured it out on the person of his son Jesus Christ that God sent in his love a savior and Jesus came so that we would not have to bear the punishment Jesus absorbed all the punishment for our sin he says these things God foretold he would do to let the Christ suffer instead of us Peter says God has now fulfilled that in Christ's coming look in some ways you might fairly say the death of Jesus Christ on the cross showed man at his worst and it showed God at his absolute best. Because the reason Jesus was on the cross was because man at his worst not only sinned and dishonored God throughout human history, but then we actually killed the prince of life that God sent to us. So at his absolute worst, we're crucifying the Son of God, but God at his best is saying, yet, but in all these things, I'm lovingly, wisely, mercifully coordinating all this to get you out of trouble, to provide a way to spare you the damnation of hell and take away your guilt of sin and take away the wrath of God and give you instead forgiveness and peace and love and hope and eternal life and a living relationship with God. So we're at our worst God's at his best and having declared that situation spiritually, Peter calls for a response, verse 19. He says, in light of those things, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. Notice the important and necessary response of any person once they realize they're a guilty sinner before God and that Jesus is the Savior for their sin, Peter says it's twofold, to repent and to be converted. And repent means to have a change of mind or a change of way of thinking that leads to a change of direction in what you do. Again, repentance is not 
a tear running down your cheek. It's not saying I'm sorry after you did something wrong. That's not biblical repentance. That's godly sorrow. Maybe it's sorrow, but godly sorrow, the Bible says, leads to repentance because repentance is a change of mind that leads then to a complete change of direction. It's, it's knowing you're going the wrong way or thinking the wrong way and choosing to think and go the opposite way afterwards. And so Peter says, it's critical that you repent. That is, turn away from what's wrong, turn the opposite way, because when people think wrong, they then live wrong. And what Peter is saying, look, it's not necessarily that you need to repent of a specific sin. You need to repent generically of sin. You need to repent, Peter is saying, of the fact that up to this point that you have been thinking wrongly towards Jesus, that you have been thinking that it's okay for you to live the way that you're living, and then somehow God's going to give you a little pass, and that it's okay, you, you can continue, yeah, you can spit in the face of God, sure. You can continue to live however you want, self-governed, stubbornly, selfishly, refuse everything, maybe even that you were raised believing. And God's going to give you a pass. And you could say, I don't need Jesus. They need Jesus, but I don't need Jesus. And God says, no, you need to repent of that. That is horrible thinking. And to repent of that means to realize, no, I am a guilty sinner before God like everyone else. And I'm going to face God one day. And I need Jesus. I need Jesus to forgive me. I need Jesus in my life to help me and to, to forgive and, and give me the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And that's what Peter said. You need to repent. Stop thinking wrong. Start thinking right. And then he says, and then after you repent, he says to be converted. And converted literally means to be changed from one condition to another condition. Because the Bible says that by nature, we're born spiritually dead. We don't have spiritual life. We don't have eternal life the day that we're born. That's what the Bible says. That condition we're in when we're born is being sinful and not having a relationship with God, but it's when you receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and you invite Jesus into your life, the presence of the Spirit of the Lord comes into your life and then you come alive spiritually. And your condition is converted from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's why we call it being born again. You have a spiritual birth. Life starts spiritually. And we all need to be converted spiritually. That's what we need. And when we receive Jesus, that conversion happens. Our condition is changed. We go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. We go from destined for hell to guaranteed headed for heaven as a citizen of heaven. That's a conversion. And Peter says you need this. And then he speaks of the benefits of repenting and being converted. Look at the benefits he speaks of. The first benefit, he says, repent and be converted that, verse 19, your sins that are in your account may be blotted out. The idea is erased, removed, forgiven. That no matter what you have done in your life, whatever you are guilty of, that when you believe who Jesus is and what he can do for you, he says your sins will be all blotted out. The slate is wiped clean. John says in his writing, 1 John chapter 1, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Man, I don't know what's happened in your life and what you know in the skeletons in your own closet, but I'll tell you this, it's a wonderful thing. Oh, how happy is the man whose sins and transgressions are forgiven. To know that your sins aren't just covered. It's not that God just said, okay, well, let me just kind of cover that. I don't want anybody to see that. Boy, that is pretty bad. 
It says that our sins are blotted out. They're cleansed. They're removed. They're not there anymore. The thing that you did wrong, the things that you've done wrong, the guilt, God blots it out. He erases it. He whitewashes it in the blood of Christ and it's cleansed. Like a virgin bride, just cleansed. Nothing's there. That God wipes that out. That's what experience happens when you come to Christ, when you receive Jesus' salvation. Peter says, your sins can be all blotted out. He then adds a second benefit, verse 19, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That is the moment we experience conversion to Christ and you have a genuine encounter with the living, risen Lord Jesus Christ. That is such a true description. As you experience the presence of the Lord, times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. Because what happens is, just like receiving a refreshing drink when you're weary and thirsty in a dry desert land, because we live life drinking from the well of this world and until the time you come to Jesus Christ and accept him as Savior and Lord and you're converted, you're just drinking from the well of the world. That's what I did. And you drink from this well and this well and this well and you're just constantly, you try maybe the next well, maybe it'll be the next well and just thirsty, 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 thirsty and then when you're converted, you have an experience with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ inside your life in a time of refreshing comes in the presence of the Lord and you drink the living waters of the Spirit of the Lord and you're fulfilled. And you're finally satisfied because the Lord alone can bring that satisfaction. It's like a refreshing drink from the well of living water. And the wonderful thing is then as you and I continue to worship Jesus and walk with Jesus as a Christian, we get to continue to enjoy, do we not, times of refreshing continually from the presence of the Lord. And only the believer knows that. Right? The times when you get alone with Jesus and you just spend time with Jesus and just He brings a refreshment to your soul as you just spend time in the presence of the Lord. Or you come to a worship gathering with God's people and you're just in the presence of the Lord and you just leave, right? You leave refreshed. It's like the Lord renews your soul when you walk away with that benefit of being refreshed from His presence. Another benefit Peter mentions of conversion, verse 21 and 22, or 20 and 21, is that we'll be ready for the coming of Christ. He says that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the time of the restoration of all things, which God had spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. So Peter says, listen, yes, Jesus was sent once, and he was crucified. But he says, Jesus, the prophets have told us, are, is coming a second time and heaven has received Jesus for now because he ascended back into heaven. But he says, Jesus is coming once again to this earth and the second time, Peter's telling us he's returning as a glorified king. And when he comes back the second time, Peter says, verse 21, he says, he's coming back to bring about the time of the restoration of all things. That is, Jesus is going to return to this earth a second time. The Bible says he's going to overthrow the Antichrist and everything that stands in opposition to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus will rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years together with his servants. And he will rule and reign and righteousness will be the standard. And all that sin 
and Satan and sinful humanity have ruined and defiled on this earth will be restored by the Lord. And the righteous reign of the government of God that was intended by God's design will be restored back to how things were supposed to function. The curse will be lifted and harmony and peace and wonderful things will be existing on this earth as the Lord brings about the restoration of that. I encourage you, again, if you want to see more of what Peter's referring to there, places like Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 11 and Zechariah chapter 8 as it describes the harmony, the peace, what's going to exist on this earth in that time as they beat their swords in the plowshares and there's no more war anymore. It says children are playing in the streets. It doesn't say praying in the streets. It says playing. Children can play in the streets and no weirdo is going to harm them because things will be changed because the righteousness of Christ will rule and the restoration of what God wanted will return. And Peter says to receive Christ and be converted makes us ready for his coming once again. Verse 22, he says, For Moses truly said, to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things and whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So Peter shows how even Moses, again, he's using scripture to validate what he's saying to the people of Israel. Even Moses, he says in Deuteronomy 18, spoke of a greater prophet a prophet greater than him that would come. And Moses warned, even as I came as a deliverer for you, he says, God's going to send a greater deliverer. And the warning Moses gave, verse 23, Peter quotes it, that every soul who won't hear that prophet, referring to Jesus, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So he says, look, the one who refuses, the prophet greater than Moses, the very word of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, will risk great judgment upon their soul for what they've done. Verse 24, he says, Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and all those who follow, as many as have spoken, foretold these days, and you are sons of the prophets. He's saying you should know these things. Of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Peter refers as well to how in the days of Abraham, that God repeatedly gave promise to Abraham, telling Abraham by the word of the Lord that the Messiah would come through his line, through the Jewish line. He quotes there in the end of verse 25, in your seed, that is the seed of Abraham, the Jewish people, all families of the earth would be blessed. In other words, God would send the Messiah through the Jewish people and first to the Jewish people but yet through that Messiah coming through the Jews, God would bring blessing to all the world because all the world would have access to that Savior, access to salvation that would come to Christ. That's why Peter says in verse 26, to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him, I love the language, to bless you in turning every one of you away from your Iniquities. So Peter drives sort of the nail home there of personal responsibility saying to them, look, not only did God send Jesus, but he said he sent him to you first. You had first opportunity. God gave you access. And I love the way he describes Jesus again there. He says, God sent, notice his humble suffering servant Jesus to bless you 
to bless you. I, I love that Peter says, look, God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world. He sent Jesus to bless the world. He didn't send Jesus to, to destroy humanity. He sent Jesus to spare humanity, to save humanity. And Peter, referring to the blessing that comes via Jesus, he says he came to bless you. How does Jesus want to bless people? In turning everyone away from their iniquities. That is, Jesus didn't just come to pardon us from the punishment of sin. He also came to release us from the power of sin controlling our lives. He came to turn you away from your iniquities. It'd be great, and I'd be yippity-doo-dah if he just pardoned my sin penalty. If I just wasn't in trouble for the punishment, I would be very thankful. But more than that, he turns us away from our iniquities. That is, Jesus offers the power for us to stop living sinful, to stop practicing wrong behaviors, to turn us away from the ways that we live that are wrong in our lives to give us the power to do that. What a glorious blessing. You know, Romans chapter 6, I encourage you, read that chapter. Romans chapter 6 describes how as the result of our unification with Jesus as followers of Christ, that we can walk in newness of life. That sin does not have to have dominion over us. And that we have the ability to no longer be slaves of sin. This is one of the great blessings of knowing Jesus. It's not just that your penalty and punishment is removed. The power of sin doesn't have to control you anymore. He says he came to turn you away from whatever sin or iniquity you struggle with. That you don't have to keep living like that because Jesus can give you the power to overcome it because he's in your life. Hey, this morning, let me say to you very directly, Jesus wants to bless you. That's what he wants. He wants to bless you. Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not that blessed. You don't understand what's going on in my life. Listen, maybe the way he wants to bless you is not in the way you interpret blessing, but in the way he interprets blessing. If Jesus has pardoned you from the punishment of your sin and damnation in hell, and Jesus is offering you the power to turn away from struggles with sin, you're blessed. You're blessed. And if you're interpreting blessing and you don't know Jesus by another means, let me say to you this morning, if you turn toward Jesus and receive him, you can be blessed. Stop trying to find blessing in everything else. Let Jesus bless you in the greatest way that he truly wants to. Amen. Let's stand together.